So hi, everyone, and welcome to the Block Demon podcast, a podcast where we discuss all things blockchain and Web3. Today, we'll be taking a deep dive into the world of Web3, what it is, where we are in its adoption, and how businesses can navigate the shift from Web2 to this emerging ecosystem. Joining us today is Peter Yang, Managing Director at Fembushi Capital and founder at Forward, that's Forward spelled with the number four. We also have Cecilia Feng, Strategic Protocol Research Lead in Blockdaemon, and Andrew Vranges, VP of Sales and General Manager for Blockdaemon in APAC. So thanks all for joining the discussion today. Without further ado, Cecilia, to set the scene, how would you explain what Web3 is at a high level? And what are some of the key differences between Web3 and Web2? Mm, that's a loaded question. So maybe let me try to dissect the question this way. Um, Web3 and Web2, in the broad sense, one could probably see that there's a centralized component. So sort of like Web2 is the, sort of the things that we are using today, different kinds of apps on the phone, mostly run with like an Amazon server in the back, quite centralized, and versus like a Web3, everything sort of infrastructure-wise is decentralized. And maybe we can dive a a little bit further here from an infrastructure perspective, the hosting itself. Um, let's say if uh, presumably the apps that we are using all runs on one particular server and that's subject to single point of failure and censorship versus um, on a web three setup, um, mostly it will be run on, let's say, something like Ethereum or Solana. These kinds of protocols, they are meant to be sort of like a censorship um, resistant in a sense that there are different nodes spread uh, across all over the globe and their mechanism designs that let's say there's some kind of attacks and is still alive, the service would still be alive. And then there's another perspective that's quite interesting from a UX perspective, which is permissioned and permissionless. With the Web3 setup, um, again, mentioned that censorship resistance, um, the network is meant to be alive, even there different forms of forces coming on the outside and presumably there would be less chance of a gatekeeper let's say you're adapt living on ethereum the protocol is living on there nobody can touch it the most likely form of a censorship would probably come from our front end let's say um you know, the user interface and it restricts, let's say, um, members from a sanctioned country on accessing the services, but pot potentially there will be other weights around as well. There's another interesting factor that comes with the interoperability. That's key difference between Web 2 and Web 3. For the apps to talk between, um, let's say, on a Web 2 setting, there's probably need to do a lot of integration on sort of like the software backend. With respect to Web 3, as from the design itself, let's say a number of apps or um, let's say build up on Ethereum, they can presumably have this innate composability, which is similar like Legos that you can very easily talk to each other. What does that entail is that for businesses, um, and generally uh, we viewed sort of like uh, people conducting business is have something to do with transaction and liquidity. In the Web3 setting, all of these are some, in a sense, much more unified. Uh, let's take an example of different kinds of uh, decentralized exchanges. The liquidity has much easier way and free of flowing to different part of places, easy to do arbitrage to achieve law of one price, all of these great stuff that sort of one can almost seem like for Web3 is a share of global resources. So, yeah. And Andrew, following up on the point that Cecilia just made, when a Web2 business is considering bringing Web3 technology into their business, 
whether for earning rewards with staking, retrieving blockchain data for an app, incorporating crypto payments into their checkout, whatever it may be, what considerations should teams take into account for the Web3 infrastructure they use to connect to this new ecosystem? And how does this choice of infrastructure affect the bottom line of a business? Thanks for the question, Connor. Look, what we're hearing from the market and institutions and our customers is, you know, they're really looking at first and foremost for somebody they can trust. So a trusted infrastructure partner. And then, you know, they're looking for, you know, all those things around compliance, policy, security and controls that are in place as well. You know, somebody that they can build confidence that really can help them go on this journey. So usually it's kind of, you know, the, the engagement will, you know, start at that, that layer. Next, they're getting into conversations really around, well, you know, what's your experience? What's your pedigree? Like, you know, you know, how have you got the track record to support me? You know, if we're talking about a Web2 business here, specifically going on a Web3 journey, like, you know, like, you know, how have you done this before and how can you help me? You know, have you got any case studies? Have you got any use case examples? You know, um, you know, what evidence can you point to there? And then I probably think the third thing they start to look for then is, you know, if any, uh, you know, uh, provider can clear the first two hurdles um, is really then, you know, well, what can you offer me specifically? You know, what, 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 what have you learned about my business and what I'm trying to achieve? And, you know, how can you help me specifically then? And then that comes down to the product offerings, right? And then I think the more advanced uh, Web2 institutions are really asking for breadth and depth of service offering as well. I think some of them maybe, you know, have looked at point solutions, but they, you know, I think the more sophisticated Web2 companies are really looking for a partner that's got a very uh, a large breadth and depth of service offering. So, you know, whether that's on the API front uh, whether it's on the blockchain access front, uh, you know, other services such as staking and security, etc. I think, lastly, I think if we talk about Blockdaemon specifically, you know, one, one service we've got that's been really popular with Web2 users has been a universal uh, API in our Ubiquity suite. And that's, we've seen a lot of traction because you can imagine a Web2 developer looking at Web3 going, wow, there's all these protocols and different ways to access by protocol. And, you know, with this specific uh, solution that we offer, the Universal API, we can standardize a lot of that complexity for a developer. And they can learn one API and get access to many, many protocols and chains. So quicker, faster uh, uh, access, uh, much quicker way to learn and get started, you know, in the Web3 world. So I think these are the three things that, you know, I'm seeing in the market, at least. Peter, turning to yourself, maybe to take a step back for a moment, Fambushi Capital is, you know, truly Web3 native, having started in 2015, the same year that Ethereum launched. And since then, you've invested in dozens of blockchain projects to date. Could you walk me through the journey of Fambushi so far from your perspective from then to today? And how was the Web3 ecosystem that Cecilia just talked about evolved over the same time period, in your opinion? Yeah, so I joined Fembusher Capital at the end of 2018, 2017-ish, uh, and was fortunate enough to learn about cryptocurrency in uh, 2013. So I was able to kind of observe this industry from both as a perspective of a retail user as well as a venture investor. And I would say in the early days, there weren't as many blockchain startups 
And most founders were interested in just building new technology and, and cool stuff. And, uh, and, and, and during that meet people, so most of the discussion kind of happens online and most of the debates were kind of philosophical and, and, but that kind of led to what, you know, what it is, the foundation of Web3 today. And at that time, the industry was faced with a lot of skepticism and criticism, especially at that time was, uh, um, the Silk Road and Mt. Gox had, uh, Hacks. So uh, similar to what we're seeing with FTX today, uh, but uh, on a different scale. Um, so our firm was created uh, to not only support founders, but also empower them to build, you know, blockchain enabled companies and create new innovative ideas. And over time, uh, both as the industry and our firm grew, um, today the industry looks quite different than than what is back then. And in say like the 2013 cycle, most people were trying to create very simple products um, and you know using blockchain to kind of validate different use cases. And at that point, that point in time, uh, we're kind of able to prove that cryptocurrency can be used as a payment and remittances. Um, application and you know that kind of became the foundation for the next cycle where in 2017 we saw the creation of smart contracts and the power to kind of create uh potentially disruptive companies that can you know be uh decentralized uh and autonomous and those organizations could transform existing business model so with that you know similar to um, what Cecilia mentioned with the composability. Uh, we were able to create new industries today, uh, such as DeFi and whatnot. Uh, and, but for this cycle in the past two years, I would say there is a slight emph less emphasis on creating these um, so-called killer applications. And there's a lot more focus uh, on say, focusing on pushing for adoption and uh so industries kind of like nft let's say uh they're more friendly to newcomers and you know while the technology itself may be less i guess interesting or critical i think is is much more important nowadays especially um to you know focusing on the adoption aspect of web3 uh even though you know today we we see a lot of uh public companies um that are being traded um, that are, are blockchain companies. Um, they're either kind of trading related or Bitcoin mining related. So most of the companies today are still kind of solving problems that only exist within crypto itself. So I think with more adoption, we can uh, see more uh, people using blockchain technology in, in, in the mainstream and I'm you know, kind of excited to see how that plays out. Uh, so in, in my opinion, I, I would like to see application as the driver for adoption, which in turn leads to the uh, uh, driver for innovation and create that kind of a positive feedback loop and help our industry grow. Just to double click on that point there, Peter, that you said, you know, there's less of a focus on the killer DAP, but more of a focus on adoption. Mm -hmm. Following on from that, you know, in terms of the life cycle of any new technology, 
we have the well-known concept of crossing the chasm from an early to a mainstream market with the innovators, the early adopters, then transitioning to the mainstream. From your own experience as a capital allocator in the blockchain space, where does Web3 today sit in that uh, adoption and that life cycle? And what are the key drivers that you see as potentially driving Web3 forward with adoption? Right. So um, if you ask your friends or family about blockchain, I would assume they'll probably have a very hard time explaining it. And, you know, it, it kind of makes sense because majority of people have little to no interactions with uh, blockchain technology the way it is today. Um, but you, you have to think um, the first application of blockchain, which is Bitcoin, was only created 14 years ago. And uh, I was doing a little bit of research and, and I realized, you know, it was created just two months before Uber. So if you think about Uber, uh, I assume nowadays people have either heard of or used Uber, but I, I don't even know if the uh, same amount of people can be said uh, has even heard of Bitcoin. So in this comparison, I would say, you know, Web3 today, we're still in the early adopter phase. Uh, we're Developers have built uh, successful products using blockchain technology and investors are now more willing to support um, these blockchain applications. And I will say, you know, in, in previous cycles, there may be only kind of like a handful of companies that were even like remotely interested in considering using blockchain technology. But in, in the past two years, we, we've seen major corporations, especially, you know, like Fortune 500 level companies, uh, you know, all integrating blockchain technology, um, say Facebook, uh, even kind of changing their name to demonstrate how dedicated they are to this uh, transformative emerging technology. So um, I would say, even though we're still in the earlier adopter phase, I would say, you know, we're not too far from actually crossing the chasm and we still need to just clear uh, obstacles similar to how Uber uh, had to overcome regulatory ob obstacles. But I, I think it's just a matter of time where, uh, before we, we, we see blockchain becoming more prevalent in, in our daily lives. You know, a lot of crypto offerings and digital asset offerings have a very high bar for assumed knowledge. Uh, and, you know, are really designed for like expert users. You know, we haven't hit that, you know, really broad motion that we have. And, you know, as you point to cloud computing, where, you know, it's it's very well democratized access. And, you know, a, you know, early in career developer can just get started. You know, there's still a lot to be done, you know, in on the blockchain side of things, on the access side, uh, on the wallet side of things. You know, most of the vectors in Web3 still you know have a lot lot of opportunity for uh room of improvement and just to make it easier to drive adoption for users as well um so i definitely see that changing over time i definitely see the ease of use uh it rapidly getting better you know simple things like documentation you know like if you go to you know some of these you know more traditional established tech companies have got all this documentation you know, but, you know, in digital assets and crypto, it's like, hey, man, like, you know, come jump in my discord, like, and work it out. Like, so I think, 
you know, that that DGEN component of Web3 is here to stay and there's that community element and that's a large part of it. But I also think you're going to see uh, uh, elements of it that are really designing for institutional adoption. And in that scenario, you're going to have to have better documentation. You know, it, 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 it's mandatory. Um, one other thing I think that's interesting to point out, you know, on, on making adoption easier. So in Blockdaemon, we've got a new service called Portara, which is the first institutional grade liquidity staking solution you know, allowing regulated entities to achieve greater capital efficiency, but still meet all their compliance requirements. Cecilia, when it comes to this new paradigm, it can seem sort of abstract sometimes. What do we mean specifically when we talk about the practical infrastructure that businesses need to connect to Web3? And how can they overcome that obstacle, uh, perhaps to accelerate that adoption? Yeah, so uh, an extension to Peter's point of uh, mass adoption, I am almost thinking about dissecting it this way. For businesses, the fundamental backbone of business is the ability to able to get paid and pay because they're using the uh, their own resources and resources from acquire resources from somewhere else and then, you know, providing resources to the people who want to buy their service. And what that translates to is the existence of a currency, which is, I would almost think, and then some sort of like the uh, infrastructure, which is the wallet to be able to transact this business with. That's all like living on chain, if one thinks about it that way. And what that translates to is that token level of infrastructure and what that entails is that the token itself should be stable enough to conduct business in, not something that could be fluctuating like today or the next day as much um, that maintains that purchasing power. And then a secure wallet to be able to hold this either in a custody form or self-custody form, and then to have some sort of the route to plug into the other places where that token can be spent. Let it be payments, let it be sort of like lending and all of that good stuff. And then that's the basic to be plugging on chain. And then the other point is that um, once it's on chain, the, the number of things that business do, the operations are fairly complex, I would say. And it probably needs some sort of a middleware layer that allows these kind of business logic to be um, automated. Um, we did see in the space there are projects that does, uh, what they do is they're this bot network. They listen to these on-chain events. And then um, based on the conditions the user are setting to automate some of the complex operational flow to sort of achieve that initial goal. And then there's another also really important part is like if um, we think about a business doing on chain, the one thing is that they would need to look back historically, right, to view the uh, financial activity that's from the back. So the visibility, the access to on-chain data, the ability to do analytics from there is also really important. So I feel like in broad stroke, there are these three pillars that would sort of need to come in place, perhaps in addition to something else that's not discussed here. A question for yourself now, Andrew, do you think that as Web3 matures, the barrier to entry for adopting Web3 will go down over time? similar to the trajectory of Web2 and what cloud computing delivered for digital services? I think it's definitely going to come down over time. You know, is it a similar trajectory? Let, let's wait and see, but it's definitely going to come down over time and scale out for sure. 
what are some of the advantages of companies adopting Web3 technology today rather than waiting until later, maybe when, as Peter said, it does cross the chasm and become more popular or widely used among businesses around the world? What's the advantage of, of getting ahead of it and starting today? Yeah, so starting early, the first thing one would think about is the first mover advantage. If we dissect a little bit more, we can almost feel like with various kind of new cycle of adoption, right? I think we went through the very chaotic Wild West phase. And now this year is much more institutions getting involved. Perhaps it will pick up later. What that entails is that first mover is important. It's like you found a new land. Now you survey the land on a broad stroke and you can now claim that land on its own. So basically market share grabbing, of course, um, that in itself, it's not an easy task, but relatively it gives um, early adopters the level of freedom in terms of being able to innovate on a much larger scope because there's also less script that's played versus if somebody comes later, uh, most of the innovation has been done and um, sort of like the lands have been claimed. It's a much more sort of difficult way to navigate and then to expand perhaps in that route. And also, you know, there's plenty of time for the users to get used to the system and become much more sticky um, in, in that perspective as well. Peter, with that in mind, what advice would you give to a team, whether they're just getting started with WebTree or wanting to scale their services to adopt this technology while staying efficient and focused on their core business delivering day-to-day results? How would you advise a team in that regard and perhaps drawing on any anecdotes or stories you may have had from your own experience with Web3 infrastructure, what considerations you'd look at into account uh, that help? Yeah, so personally, I focus mostly on very early stage startups. So I'll I'll keep my advice towards early stage founders, Um, especially since most of the founders I, I meet are introduced to me through founders I've supported in the past. So most of the pictures I hear are are usually barely past the uh, idea stage, let's say. And uh, um, oftentimes I, I, I see um, most founders are too focused on perfecting the idea and the technology itself. So most conversations early on are like, I have this great idea. I, I you know, have this and that plans that I think is, is going to be awesome. Um, but they don't spend enough time thinking about how or why people should use uh, either their product or technology. Um, and and I, I will use, uh, let's just say payment as kind of an example. Um, for credit card transactions, they cost probably about an average of 2% on each transaction and bank transfer take days to complete. And blockchain can improve those um, dramatically and either, you know, making transactions faster or cheaper. Um, but institutions are, are still not using you know, blockchain technology, even though there's a clear advantage of, of doing so. So I would say, you know, instead of thinking about how disruptive or creating features, let's say, that can optimize an existing solution, I would say, you know, try, try to focus on ideas that uh, allow you to, to build a product that can in, transform an in, in industry, um, especially those that, that are, um, let's say, not make sense initially. 
And, you know, let, let using example, um, I never would have expected, you know, people to rent out their homes to, to strangers and, and, but, you know, Airbnb kind of built their whole business model around this and is core to the sharing economy. So, um, you know, just don't, don't be a try like, don't be afraid to, to try new ideas. Uh, and, you know, especially in the beginning, uh, you know, where, where you can kind of pivot anytime you, you feel like there, there isn't a product market fit, but, you know, make sure you have the appropriate metric uh, to, to kind of measure performance and outcomes. And, you know, you, you should be fine to um, make it through the, the early days of, of uh, being a, a startup founder. Andrew, as a closing thought, what are some of the advantages of having a partner to help businesses navigate Web3, such as Blockdaemon? Yeah, great, great question. Thanks a lot, Connor. Look, there's many advantages. Um, Blockdaemon, we essentially help institutions navigate uh, this world through blockchain access, proof of stake staking, on and off ramps, and MPC security solutions and tooling. Um, We've been busy building out all those things that an institution needs to see in a partner, not just the product offerings I mentioned, um, but, you know, things like ISO 27001, clear governance structure, well-known listed companies on our board. So these things, in addition to we've got some of the best security and compliance in the market, were battle tested with some of the largest customers globally. And, you know, those customers are, you know, customers are ours and some of them are even investors in Blockdaemon as well. So I think both of these things add up uh, our products and how we operate our company. And all this adds up to being the ideal partner for, for some of the largest crypto native, digital native, financial services and enterprise customers to explore and grow their business safely in the Web3 world. Interesting. Um... And on that note, thank you, Peter. Thank you, Cecilia. Thank you, Andrew, for your time today. Any closing thoughts before we wrap up? Uh, no, it's uh, glad to be here and uh, always looking to forward to supporting founders. So, you know, uh, feel free to reach out uh, anytime uh, and uh, happy to be of help. So thank you for your time and uh, all the best. Thank you very much.